Ah, that's the hero of the British people who, through his leadership, did so much. Or maybe to Frenchmen, Napoleon. I couldn't think of any greater, more outstanding. Have they ever had a great leader since Napoleon? Uh, he certainly would awaken the uh, attracted uh, attention of French people. To Americans, George Washington, the one who is the founding father of the Confederation. Moses was such an outstanding figure. And the call of the gospel, the call of the New Testament contract with God was no longer with Moses, but with Christ through his Son. Welcome to Let the Bible Speak. This is Pastor Ian Golliher. Trust the Lord will bless you today as we seek the Lord's help. Thank you for being a partner with us here on Let the Bible Speak, for tuning in day by day at this time, and we trust the Lord will bless you richly. Today's message is from Hebrews 12, Leaving Sinai, that's Moses, for Zion, that's the spiritual New Jerusalem. And I trust that we're no longer in bondage, but that we are seeking that wonderful liberty and freedom that we find in Christ. Close of the program, we'll also have a little message on the model marriage, so stay tuned. Let's turn to the passage we read in Hebrews 12, and I want to ask you, have you ever been maybe on a train ride, and whatever length of time the journey took, at some point the conductor had to come along and waken you up and alert you to the reality, you have arrived. And you're startled. You're shocked. Either you had expectations it would take much longer, or the time passed by without you noticing, and you have actually arrived, and you are here. Those are the words of the conductor. You are here. That illustrates what we have in verse 18 in Hebrews chapter 12. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched. Now, that's Mount Sinai. And then you go down to verse 22. But ye are come unto Mount Zion. These readers of the book of Hebrews thought they were still at Mount Sinai. But in reality, they had arrived, and ye are already come to Mount Zion. Now, the two locations are so different. Mount Sinai and the other is Mount Zion. One is the dreaded wilderness in the very rocky and sparsely populated area uh, that was torturous to live in. The heat of the day, the lack of supplies, the difficulties of life in the hot desert. And of course, this should be exciting news. We're no longer in Mount Sinai. 
We have arrived. We have come to Mount Zion. But these people weren't happy. These were so wedded to Moses. He was their hero. And they had lost sight of looking unto Jesus, their Lord and their Savior. Now that, you might think, is very odd. What were they thinking? One is so inhospitable, the other is so blessed. How could they get into the rut and to the thinking that we are still under Mount Sinai with all the thundering of the law and all the terrifying things that are right there? Now, this message tonight may well be for your benefit, because there are many people, though they profess faith in the Lord Jesus, who live under the terrors of the law. They live more at Mount Sinai than they do at Mount Zion. They live more under the legal restraints and constraints as if Moses was their leader than they do in all the liberties and the blessings of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is the apostles' final argument to the readers of this book of Hebrews that you are not to go back to the Old Testament with all its Levitical laws, all its emphasis on Moses and legalism. Do not go back, but rather look unto Jesus. And as you will find in many commentaries and many works of exhortation, that the strongest argument is kept to the end. And right through this book of Hebrews, one reason after another is given why they are not to draw back. And you will see that uh, statement over and over and over. Do not draw back to the destruction of your soul. Now, the big problem was these Hebrews were glued to Moses. They were fixated by their traditions and nostalgia. I don't think you can call it much more than nostalgia to anything that was even slightly alluding to the name of Moses. And it was a mixture of nostalgia and nationalistic pride that when someone spoke those things, it had an automatic attraction and would have drawn them in that direction. It's like someone to a British person mentioning the name Winston Churchill. Ah, that's the hero of the British people who, through his leadership, did so much. Or maybe to Frenchmen, Napoleon. I couldn't think of any greater, more outstanding. Have they ever had a great leader since Napoleon? Uh, he certainly would awaken the uh, attracted uh, attention of French people. To Americans, George Washington the one who is the founding father of the Confederation. Moses was such an outstanding figure. And the call of the gospel, 
the call of the New Testament contract with God was no longer with Moses, but with Christ through his Son. Now, if you go back to chapter 1, the opening two verses, you will find that this is really the theme of the book. God hath in these last days spoken to us through, not Moses, through his Son. And that is the great argument, and he pulls it all together in these final verses of chapter 12. Now, we're going to look at these verses beginning here, and you will see that this is based on the blessed contrast between Mount Sinai and Zion. We're going to look at verse 22 in that, but ye are come unto Mount Zion. And he goes on to explain, you're no longer in Sinai, you're in Mount Zion. And then you'll, you'll see that verse 22 begins with the word, but, but. This is the changeover. This is the new contract now. This is the gospel, not legalism. But ye are come unto Mount Zion. And then verses 25, 26, you will see that there is now this voice that speaks from heaven. And it is the voice that God speaks through his Son, no longer the voice that they heard at Mount Sinai, the voice that thundered, the voice that made the people tremble and recoil away back and said, Moses, you speak to God. Don't let him speak to us. They could not hear that voice. It was so terrifying. And so these are the aspects of this final argument of the apostle. Right, let's begin at verse 18. Let's begin at verse 18. And you'll see the emphasis here on Sinai, the Mount of Terror. For you are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. Why? They were so terrified. They could not endure that. Now, I'm not sure how familiar you are with that time in Mount Sinai when God gave the law. This is going back now to Exodus 20, where you can read the Ten Commandments. But the prior verses at the end of verse 19 is what these words in Hebrews is alluding to. God in the mountain, smoking, great shots of bolts of lightning, and God's voice thundering down to the people of Israel that would dare approach that mountain. So let's go to that passage, and I don't think we can appreciate Hebrews 12 and these statements about Mount Sinai unless we are reminded of the absolute horrific sights and sounds which the children of Israel saw at that very time. So we're going firstly to, to Exodus 19 and verse 16. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning 
that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that were in the camp trembled. Verse 17, chapter 19, verse 17. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended in it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long, now there's the trumpet that is mentioned in Hebrews 12, and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake. And God answered him by a voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount. And the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go down, charge the people, lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. And let the priests also which come near to the Lord sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth unto them. And so these were the circumstances and these were the terrifying events that preceded Moses in that mount receiving the Ten Commandments. And then you will find after the Ten Commandments were given, and we're moving out of chapter 20 and to verse 18, and all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God is come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. And here we have this distance that is between the holy Lord God and sinful men. They dare not come near to God. Now, when you go back to Hebrews 12, and verse 18, you will see that all of those events are summarized in four statements. The mount that could not be touched, burned with fire, blackness, darkness, tempest, or storm. These were the terrifying things that accompanied the presence of God upon that mountain. And no wonder the people did not want to go near no wonder they said, Moses, you talk to God. You be our mediator. You be the middleman. And when whatever God says to you, we will hear. And Hebrews 12 is all about God speaking. But now, instead of speaking through Sinai and through Moses, he is speaking through his Son, the mediator of the covenant. Look at verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. 
and he now is our middleman. He is the one who represents us before God and speaks to God and speaks to us in turn. And of course, he does not speak terror, but he speaks assurance. He speaks peace and grace, and he pours into our hearts that sense that we are accepted of God. So what is the great argument here? The apostle's argument is, don't dare go back to Moses. Don't even think about departing from the voice of Jesus to go back to the voice of the law. That is destruction, and the children of Israel could not bear it. You are called to listen to the voice of God through His Son at Mount Zion. Now, we also need in our hearts a continual application of the gospel, because at heart we are all legalists. At heart we all want to work, perform, and prove that we do it ourselves our way, and we can impress God. And if you are one of those people who are tend to go back to search, did I do it right? Did I do it well enough? Did I do it long enough? Uh, has, is God pleased with me? There is within you the spirit of Sinai. There is within your heart the sense in which you need to go back to those things. But in reality, you need to listen to the voice of of the Savior. What does Christ say to us? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What grace we receive from the lips of the Savior compared to the thunderings of the law. Now, how did I get to this? One little thought, and it's linking up Esau because Esau lost out. You remember, he sold the birthright, and he lost out through eating. How was it that Adam and Eve lost out? Through eating the forbidden fruit. Esau, through that mess of pottage for which he sold his birthright. Our Lord Jesus got us the victory by abstaining from food. He was tempted 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, and he would not turn the stones into bread. He is our conqueror and who brings victory, blessing, and grace to us. And of course, the Lord has denied himself that he might be the Savior of his people, and he has done it all at the cross. He has finished the work to purchase peace for us, so that there is no longer the thunderings and the smoke and the condemnation. And Paul put it, there is therefore no, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. This is Ian Golliher. What is biblical marriage? I never thought I would live in times when we would have to answer such an ABC question on marriage. Society is pushing agendas that force us to go back to basics and look again at the foundations for biblical marriage. 
I won't digress into the humanistic ideas that are based on evolutionary thinking. There can be no model at all for human relations if we are the product of chance over vast periods of time. Such a view leads to marshy ground of life spawning and life endlessly developing into something we don't know what. The one thing we need to observe is that across all species, male and female unions have been the only means of reproduction. Any departure from that clear dichotomy of male and female has caused species or subgroups to die out. Our understanding of biblical marriage must go back to God's creative work when he made man male and female. That is a clear statement on the Genesis record, and it is a fact known through the populations of the world. Mankind exists, lives, and procreates as male and female. This is an historic fact, and it's a biological fact. Any divergence from this basic position either neglects the facts or fights against them. One of the marvels of human civilization is the almost perfect balance in the number of births of boys and girls. Some families may be blessed with all boys, and some families may be blessed with all girls. Not all families are blessed with two and two, one and one, or five and five. However, in any population around the world, there is the constant balance of male and female. The only interruption to this has been human intervention through family planning with favoritism for the birth of boys, meaning the abortion of girls. This creates an imbalance, but it is one that is accountable through human interference and rebellion to the plan of God. This cohabitation of man and woman to produce children has been a vastly important issue in all societies. The only consistent model of marriage has been a contract between one man and one woman. This was God's providential work in creating Adam and then creating Eve as his wife and helpmeet. God didn't make Adam a polygamist by giving him more wives than one. In God's work of creating the first parents, Adam was created first and woman was given as a helpmeet to him. Their difference in biological makeup were dramatic and obvious. Adam could not produce offspring alone. He needed a wife with the biological ability to conceive and bear children. Scientists might weigh in here with the well-established fact that each human person has 23 pairs of chromosomes. The 23rd pairing determines the sex, that is, the XY factor in determining male versus female. XX is for girl, and XY is for boy. This is a fixed law of creation, built in by God as creator. He not only made one set of humans, he established an unchangeable, perpetual law of procreation by requiring 46 chromosomes, which cannot be provided by female unions alone, nor male unions alone. There was no other way for human life to procreate 
in order to fulfill its God-given mandate to multiply and replenish the earth. And that law of pairing chromosomes across genders applies to every generation. This model has been followed consistently throughout the ages. Yes, there have been perversions and horrible abuses of it, but nevertheless the model of one man and one woman in marriage union continues throughout the world, from nation to nation and culture to culture. It is the model that is fought against, rebelled against, and mocked by many, but only because it is the model. Everything else is an experiment and is doomed to feel as a solid building block to any society. The Lord Jesus countenanced marriage between one man and one woman when he attended a wedding at Cana of Galilee and spoke of the permanence of marriage in underscoring the issue of divorce, which was abused in his generation. The Apostle Paul built on the model of marriage between one man and one woman, as in creation of Adam and Eve, when he expounded on marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. And he talks about, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This creation model laid the foundation for marriage unions between one man and one woman. But then there is another model to focus upon, a model that lifts this to an even higher order. The Apostle Paul alluded to it in this passage in Ephesians 5. It is the model of Christ and the church. Christ is the husband as Redeemer, Savior, and the body of believers is the bride, the Lamb's wife, bought by the blood of Christ. There is but one Savior and one church. In His infinite wisdom, God has modeled marriage between one man and one woman on the redemption plan of Christ as Savior of His church, even giving His life for her. The apostle went on to show that a husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. That means sacrificial and pure love. The Bible is also very clear that every other sexual union outside of marriage between one man and one woman brings down the wrath of God. Adulterers and fornicators God will judge. Marriage is honorable and the bed undefiled. Marriage between man and woman has God's blessing. It is God's plan in creation, procreation, raising of godly children. Marriage and the establishment of family is the building block of society. Marriage and the family is the first institution God ordained. Without it, humanity is doomed to misery, corruption, and the wrath of God. Bible passages to read on this is Genesis 1 to 3, Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 7, and Ephesians chapter 5. Let us then rejoice in God's gift of marriage and pray to live up to the one model that God is pleased to bless. You are listening to Let the Bible Speak, the radio broadcast of the Free Presbyterian Church in Canada. This is Pastor Ian Golliher. If you missed part of today's program or would like to hear it again, you can find it archived by program date on our website. Just go to 
ltbs.ca, CA for Canada. There you can read my blog, find my Bible study notes, audio and video sermons, as well as helpful articles. Or you can go to our podcast on iTunes. We're on the air Sundays at 9.30 a.m. for our full church broadcast and Monday to Friday, 5 a.m. and 5 p.m. on this station to bring you the gospel from our free Presbyterian church here in Cloverdale. We also invite you to our church services on Sundays, 10.30 and 6 p.m. Through our website, you can listen and view to our online services at 10.30 and 6 p.m. Make it your Sunday worship. Click on the Live Now button on the homepage of our website. Or if you would like to talk with me one-on-one as a pastor, please give me a call. The phone number is 604-897-2040. The mailing address is 187 9058 Avenue, Surrey, BC, V3S1M6. We're located just two blocks north of Number 10 Highway on 188th Street. Our website again is ltbs.ca. You can join us Monday to Friday, 5 a.m., 5 p.m., here on this station as we let the Bible speak. Mm-hmm.